Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's wonderful to be here with you. Tonight, we will be returning to The Enchanted April. But before I open our book, take a moment to relax where you are. Take a big stretch and allow your body to release any excess tension in your muscles. Physically feel yourself let go. Now, let's take a deep breath in and imagine all those thoughts, worries or concerns from the day are filling up a big balloon in your belly. On your exhale, let that balloon float away from you. Once more, inhale. And exhale. In our last episode, Rose wrote to her husband, Frederick. She remembered how Lottie had received a telegram from Melash as soon as the letter had reached him. She tried not to hope for too much, but did imagine how wonderful that would feel. On the day she knew the letter would have been delivered, she waited all morning before going back to the house to ensure enough time would have passed for a telegram to have been received. When she got back for lunch, there was a telegram for her, but not from Frederick, from the owner of the house, Mr. Briggs. He was in Italy and traveling past the castle he wanted to drop by. Mr. Briggs had not been able to stop thinking about Rose since he had met her that rainy day in London when she had dropped off the rent money. He arrived much sooner than Rose had expected, and as soon as he had, he asked to take a walk with her. They had a wonderful afternoon, walking the castle grounds all the way up to the lighthouse. At dinner, he seemed to charm the whole company. Mrs. Fisher was particularly taken with him. She thought him just the type of man she would have loved to have had for a son. She laughed out loud in his presence, which is something the group realized they had never encountered during their acquaintance with the older lady. Melash Wilkins saw the way Mr. Briggs looked at Rose, and his mind began to whirl with the professional, legal possibilities surrounding this new development. And that is where we pick back up tonight. Mrs. Fisher, thinking about telling her new friend all about the odd sensations she had felt since arriving at San Salvatore, So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 18 continued. What Mrs. Fisher was thinking was how much surprised they would be if she told them of her very odd 
and exciting sensation of going to come out all over buds. They would think she was an extremely silly old woman, and so would she have thought as lately two days ago. But the bud idea was becoming familiar to her. She was more apprivoise now, as dear Matthew Arnold used to say, and though it would undoubtedly be best if one's appearance and sensations matched, yet supposing they did not, and one couldn't have everything, was it not better to feel young somewhere rather than old everywhere? Time enough to be old everywhere again, inside as well as out, when she got back to her sarcophagus in the Prince of Wales Terrace. Yet it is probable that without the arrival of Briggs, Mrs. Fisher would have gone on secretly fermenting in her shell. The others only knew her as severe. It would have been more than her dignity could bear suddenly to relax, especially towards the three young women. But now came the stranger Briggs, a stranger who at once took to her as no young man had taken to her in her life, and it was the coming of Briggs and his real and manifest appreciation for just such a grandmother, thought Briggs, hungry for home life and its concomitants would he have liked to have had that released Mrs. Fisher from her shell. And here she was at last, as Lottie had predicted, pleased, good-humoured, and benevolent. Lottie, coming back half an hour later from her panic and following the sound of voices into the top garden in the hope of still finding tea, saw at once what had happened. For Mrs. Fisher at that very moment, was laughing. She's burst her cocoon, thought Lottie, and as swift as she was in all her movements, and impulsive, and also without any sense of propriety to worry and delay her, she bent over the back of Mrs. Fisher's chair and kissed her. Good gracious! cried Mrs. Fisher, starting violently, for such a thing had not happened to her since Mr. Fisher's earlier days, and then only gingerly. The kiss was a real kiss, and rested on Mrs. Fisher's cheek a moment with a strange, soft sweetness. When she saw whose it was, A deep flush spread over her face, Mrs. Wilkins kissing her, and the kiss feeling so affectionate. Even if she had wanted to, she could not, in the presence of the appreciative Mr. Briggs, resume her cast-off severity and begin rebuking again. But she did not want to. Was it possible Mrs. Wilkins liked her, had liked her all this time, while she had been so much disliking her herself. A queer little trickle of warmth filtered through the frozen defences of Mrs. Fisher's heart. Somebody young kissing her. Somebody young wanting to kiss her. Very much flushed, she watched the strange creature, apparently quite unconscious she had done anything extraordinary, shaking hands with Mr. Briggs on her husband's introducing him, and immediately embarking on the friendliest conversation with him, exactly as she had known him all her life. What a strange creature. What a very strange creature. It was natural, she being so strange, that one should have, perhaps, misjudged her. I'm sure you want some tea, 
said Briggs with eager hospitality to Lottie. He thought her delightful. Freckles, picnic untidiness and all. Just such a sister would he. This is cold, he said, feeling the teapot. I'll tell Francesca to make you some fresh. He broke off and blushed. Aren't I forgetting myself? He said, laughing and looking round at them. Very natural, very natural, Mr. Wilkins reassured him. I'll go and tell Francesca, said Rose, getting up. No, no, said Briggs. Don't go away. And he put his hands to his mouth and shouted. Francesca, called Briggs. She came running. No summons in their experience had been answered by her with such celerity. Her master's voice, remarked Mr. Wilkins, aptly, he considered. Make fresh tea, ordered Briggs in Italian. Quick, quick. And then, remembering himself, blushed again and begged everybody's pardon. Very natural, very natural, Mr. Wilkins reassured him. Briggs then explained to Lottie what he had explained twice already, once to Rose and once to the other two, that he was on his way to Rome and thought he would get out at Mazzago and just look in to see if they were comfortable and continue his journey the next day, staying the night in a hotel at Mazzago. But how ridiculous, said Lottie. Of course you must stay here. It is your house. There is Kate Lumley's room, she added, turning to Mrs. Fisher. You wouldn't mind Mr. Briggs having it for one night? Kate Lumley isn't in it, you know, she said, turning to Briggs again and laughing. And Mrs. Fisher, to her immense surprise, laughed too. She knew that any other time, this remark would have struck her as excessively unseemly, and yet now she only thought it funny. No, indeed, she assured Briggs, Kate Lumley was not in that room. Very fortunately, for she was an excessively wide person, and the room was excessively narrow. Kate Lumley might get into it, but that was about all. Once in, she would fit it so tightly that probably she would never be able to get out again. It was entirely at Mr. Briggs's disposal, and she hoped he would do nothing so absurd as to go to a hotel. He, the owner of the whole place. Rose listened to this speech wide-eyed with amazement. Mrs. Fisher laughed very much as she made it, Lottie laughed very much too, and at the end of it bent down and kissed her again. Kissed her several times. So you see, my dear boy, said Mrs. Fisher, you must stay here and give us all a great deal of pleasure. A great deal indeed, corroborated Mr. Wilkins heartily. A very great deal, repeated Mrs. Fisher, looking exactly like a pleased mother. Do, said Rose, on Briggs's turning inquiringly to her. How kind of you all, he said, his face broad with smiles. I'd love to be a guest here. What a new sensation. And with three such, he broke off and looked around. I say, he asked, oughtn't I to have a fourth hostess? Francesca said she had four mistresses. Yes, there's Lady Caroline, said Lottie. Then hadn't we better find out first if she invites me too? Oh, but she's sure, began Lottie. The daughter of the Dwight witches, Briggs, said Mr. Wilkins is not likely to be wanting in the proper hospitable impulses. The daughter of the... repeated Briggs, but he stopped dead, 
For there, in the doorway, was the daughter of the Dwatwitches herself, or rather coming towards him out of the dark doorway, into the brightness of the sunset, was that which he had not in his life yet seen, but only dreamed of, his ideal of absolute loveliness. Chapter 19 And then, when she spoke, what chance was there for poor Briggs? He was undone. All Scrap said was, How do you do? on Mr. Wilkins presenting him. But that was enough. It undid Briggs. From a cheerful, chatty, happy young man, overflowing with life and friendliness, he became silent, solemn, and with little beads on his temples. Also, he became clumsy, dropping the teaspoon as he handed her the cup, mismanaging the macaroons so that one rolled onto the ground. His eyes could not keep off the enchanting face for a moment, and when Mr. Wilkins, elucidating him, for he failed to elucidate himself, informed Lady Catherine that in Mr. Briggs she beheld the owner of San Salvatore, who was on his way to Rome, but had got out at Mazzago, etc., etc., and that the other three ladies had invited him to spend the night in what was to all intents and purposes his own house rather than a hotel, and Mr. Briggs was only waiting for the seal of her approval to this invitation she being the fourth hostess. When Mr. Wilkins, balancing his sentences and being admirably clear and enjoying the sound of his own cultured voice, explained the position in this manner to Lady Caroline, Briggs sat and never said a word. A deep melancholy invaded Scrap, the symptoms of the incipient grabber were all there and only too familiar, and she knew that if Briggs stayed, her rest cure might be regarded as over. Then, Kate Lumley occurred to her. She caught at Kate as at a straw. It would have been delightful, she said, faintly smiling at Briggs. She could not in decency not smile, at least a little, but even a little betrayed the dimple, and Briggs's eyes became more fixed than ever. I'm only wondering if there is room. Yes, there is, said Lottie. There is Kate Lumley's room. Why, well, I thought, said Scrap to Mrs. Fisher, and it seemed to Briggs that he had never heard music till now. Your friend was expected immediately. Oh, no, said Mrs. Fisher with an odd placidness, Scrap thought. Miss Lumley, said Mr. Wilkins. Or should I? He inquired of Mrs. Fisher. Say Mrs. Nobody has ever married Kate, said Mrs. Fisher complacently. Quite so. Miss Lumley does not arrive today in any case, Lady Caroline, and Mr. Briggs has, unfortunately, if I may say so, to continue his journey tomorrow, so that his staying would in no way interfere with Miss Lumley's possible movements. Then, of course, I join in the invitation, said Scrab, with what was to Briggs the most divine cordiality. He stammered something flushing scarlet, and Scrap thought, oh, and turned her head away. But that merely made Briggs acquainted with her profile, and if there existed anything more lovely than Scrap's full face, it was her profile. Well, it was only for this one afternoon and evening. He would leave, no doubt, the first thing in the morning. It took hours to get to Rome, awful if he had hung on till the night train. She had a feeling that the principal express to Rome passed through at night, 
Why hadn't that woman, Kate Lumley, arrived yet? She had forgotten all about her, but now she remembered she was to have been invited a fortnight ago. What had become of her? This man, once let in, would come and see her in London, would haunt the places she was likely to go. He had the makings, her experienced eye could see, of a passionately persistent grabber. If, thought Mr. Wilkins, observing Briggs's face in sudden silence, any understanding existed between this young fellow and Mrs. Arbuthnot, there is now going to be trouble. Trouble of a different nature from the kind I feared, in which Arbuthnot would have played a leading part. In fact, the part of petitioner. But trouble that may need help and advice nonetheless, for it's not being publicly scandalous. Briggs, impelled by his passions and her beauty, will aspire to the daughter of the Dwartwitches. She, naturally and properly, will repel him. Mrs. Arbuthnot, left in the cold, will be upset and show it. Arbuthnot, on his arrival, will find his wife in enigmatic tears, inquiring into their cause. He will be met with an icy reserve. More trouble than may be expected, and in me, they will seek and find their advisor. When Lottie said Mrs. Arbuthnot wanted her husband, she was wrong. What Mrs. Arbuthnot wants is Briggs, and it looks uncommonly as if she were not going to get him. Well, I'm their man. Where are your things, Mr. Briggs? asked Mrs. Fisher, her voice round with motherliness. Oughtn't they to be fetched? For the sun was nearly in the sea now, and the sweet-smelling April dampness that followed immediately on its disappearance was beginning to steal into the garden. Briggs started. My things, he repeated. Oh, yes, I must fetch them. They're in Mazago. I'll send Domenico. My fly is waiting in the village. He can go back in it. I'll go and, and tell him. He got up. To whom he was talking? To Mrs. Fisher, ostensibly. Yet his eyes were fixed on Scrap, who said nothing and looked at no one. Then, recollecting himself, he stammered, I am awfully sorry, I, I keep on forgetting. I'll go down and fetch them myself. We can easily send Domenico, said Rose, and at her gentle voice, he turned his head. Why, there was his friend, the sweet-named lady. But how had she not in this short interval changed? Was it the failing light making her so colorless, so vague-featured, so dim, so much like a ghost? A nice, good ghost, of course, and still with a pretty name, but only a ghost. He turned from her to scrap again and forgot Rose Arbuthnot's existence. How was it possible for him to bother about anybody or anything else in this first moment of being face to face with his dream come true? Briggs had not supposed or hoped that anyone as beautiful as his dream of beauty existed. He had never, till now, met even an approximation. Pretty women, charming women by the score he had met and properly appreciated, but never the real, the godlike thing itself. He used to think, if ever I saw a perfectly beautiful woman, I should die. Though, having now met what to his ideas was a perfectly beautiful woman, he did not die. He became very nearly as incapable of managing his own affairs as if he had. The others were obliged to arrange everything for him. By questions they extracted from him, 
that his luggage was in the station cloakroom at Mazago, and they sent for Domenico and urged and prompted by everybody except Scrap, who sat in silence and looked at no one. Briggs was induced to give him the necessary instructions for going back in the fly and bringing out his things. It was a sad sight to see the collapse of Briggs. Everybody noticed it, even Rose. Upon my word, thought Mrs. Fisher, the way one pretty face can turn a delightful man into an idiot is past all patience. And feeling the air getting chilly and the sight of the enthralled Briggs painful, she went in to order his room to be got ready, regretting now that she had pressed the poor boy to stay. She had forgotten Lady Caroline's killjoy face for the moment, and the more completely owing to the absence of any ill effects produced by it on Mr. Wilkins. Poor boy. Such a charming boy, too, left to himself. It was true she could not accuse Lady Caroline of not leaving him to himself, for she was taking no notice of him at all, but that did not help. Exactly like foolish moths did men, in all other respects intelligent, flutter round the impassive, lighted candle of a pretty face. She had seen them do it. She had looked on only too often. Almost she laid a mother hand on Briggs's fair head as she passed him. Poor boy. Then, Scrap, having finished her cigarette, got up and went indoors too. She saw no reason why she should sit there in order to gratify Mr. Briggs's desire to stare. She would have liked to stay out longer, to go to her corner behind the Daphne bushes and look at the sunset sky and watch the lights coming on one by one in the village below and smell the sweet moistness of the evening. But if she did, Mr. Briggs would certainly follow her. The old familiar tyranny had begun again. Her holiday of peace and liberation was interrupted, perhaps over, for who knew if he would go away after all tomorrow. He might leave the house, driven out of it by Kate Lumley, but that was nothing to prevent his taking rooms in the village and coming up every day. This tyranny of one person over another. And she was so miserably constructed she wouldn't even be able to frown him down without being misunderstood. Scrap, who loved this time of the evening in her corner, felt indignant with Mr. Briggs, who was doing her out of it, and she turned her back on the garden and him and went towards the house without a look or a word. But Briggs, when he realized her intention, leapt to his feet snatched chairs which were not in her way out of it, kicked a footstool which was not in her path on one side, hurried to the door which stood wide open in order to hold it open and followed her through it, walking by her side along the hall. What was to be done with Mr. Briggs? Well, it was his hall she couldn't prevent his walking along it. I hope, he said, not able while walking to take his eyes off her so that he knocked against several things he would otherwise have avoided. The corner of a bookcase, an ancient carved cupboard, the table with the flowers on it, shaking the water over. That you are quite comfortable here. If you're not, I'll... I'll flay them alive. His voice vibrated. What was to be done with Mr. Briggs? She could, of course, stay in her room the whole time, say she was ill, not appear at dinner. But again, the tyranny of this. 
very comfortable indeed, said Scrap. If I had dreamed you were coming, he began. It's a wonderful old place, said Scrap, doing her utmost to sound detached and forbidding, but with little hope of success. The kitchen was on this floor, and passing its door, which was open a crack, they were observed by the servants, whose thoughts, communicated to each other by looks, may be roughly reproduced by such rude symbols as aha and aho, symbols which represented and included their appreciation of the inevitable, their foreknowledge of the inevitable, and their complete understanding and approval. Are you going upstairs? asked Briggs as she paused at the foot of them. Yes. Which room do you sit in? The drawing room or the small yellow room? In my own room. So then he couldn't go up with her. So then all he could do was wait till she came out again. He longed to ask her which was her own room. It thrilled him to hear her call any room in his house her own room, that he might picture her in it. He longed to know if by any happy chance it was his room, forever after to be filled with her wonder. But he didn't dare. He would find that out later from someone else. Francesca. Anybody. Then I I shan't see you again till dinner. Dinner is at eight, was Scrap's evasive answer as she went upstairs. He watched her go. She passed the Madonna, the portrait of Rose Arbuthnot, and the dark-eyed figure he had thought so sweet seemed to turn pale, to shrivel into insignificance as she passed. She turned the bend on the stairs, and the setting sun, shining through the west window a moment on her face, turned her to glory. She disappeared, and the sun went out too and the stairs were dark and empty. He listened till her footsteps were silent, trying to tell from the sound of the shutting door which room she had gone into, then wandered aimlessly away through the hall again and found himself back in the top garden. Scrap from her window saw him there. She saw Lottie and Rose sitting on the end parapet, where she would have liked to have been, and she saw Mr. Wilkins buttonholing Briggs and evidently telling him the story of the oleander tree in the middle of the garden. Briggs was listening with a patience she thought rather nice, seeing that it was his oleander tree and his own father's story. She knew Mr. Wilkins was telling him the story by his gestures, Domenico had told her soon after her arrival, and he had also told Mrs. Fisher, who had told Mr. Wilkins. Mrs. Fisher thought highly of this story, and often spoke of it. It was about a cherry wood walking stick. Briggs's father had thrust this stick into the ground at that spot, and said to Domenico's father, who was the then gardener, here we will have an oleander. And Briggs's father left the stick in the ground as a reminder to Domenico's father, and presently, how long afterwards no one remembered, the stick began to sprout, and it was an oleander. There stood poor Mr. Briggs being told all about it and listening to the story he must have known from infancy with patience. Probably he was thinking of something else. She was afraid he was. How unfortunate. How extremely unfortunate. The determination that seized people to get hold of and engulf other people. If only they could be induced to stand more on their own feet. Why couldn't Mr. Briggs be more like Lottie, who never wanted anything of anybody, but was complete in herself, 
and respected other people's completeness. One loved being with Lottie. With her, one was free and yet befriended. Mr. Briggs looked so really nice, too. She thought she might like him if only he wouldn't so excessively like her. Scrap felt melancholy. Here she was, shut up in her bedroom, which was stuffy from the afternoon sun that had poured into it, instead of out in the cool garden, and all because of Mr. Briggs. Intolerable tyranny, she thought, flaring up. She wouldn't endure it. She would go out all the same. She would run downstairs while Mr. Wilkins, really that man was a treasure, held Mr. Briggs down, telling him about the oleander, get out of the house by the front door and take cover in the shadows of the zigzag path. Nobody could see her there. Nobody would think of looking for her there. She snatched up a wrap, for she did not mean to come back for a long while, perhaps not even to dinner. It would be all Mr. Briggs's fault if she went dinnerless and hungry. And without another glance out of the window to see if she was still safe, she stole out and got away to the sheltering trees of the zigzag path. And there, sat down on one of the seats, placed at each bend to assist the upward journey of those who were breathless. Ah, this was lovely, thought Scrap with a sigh of relief. How cool, how good it smelled. She could see the quiet water of the little harbour through the pine trunks and the lights coming out in the houses on the other side. And all round her, the green dusk was splashed by the rose pink of the gladioluses in the grass and the white of the crowding daisies. Ah, this was lovely. So still, nothing moving, not a leaf, not a stalk. The only sound was a dog barking far away somewhere up on the hills, or when the door of the little restaurant in the piazza below was opened and there was a burst of voices, silenced again immediately by the swinging to of the door. She drew in a deep breath of pleasure. Ah, this was. Her deep breath was arrested in the middle. What was that? She leaned forward, listening, her body tense. Footsteps on the zigzag path. Briggs finding her out. Should she run? No, the footsteps were coming up, not down. Someone from the village, perhaps Angelo with provisions. She relaxed again. But the steps were not the steps of Angelo, that swift and springy youth. They were slow and considered, and they kept on pausing. Someone who isn't used to hills, thought Scrap. The idea of going back to the house did not occur to her. She was afraid of nothing in life except love. Brigands or murderers as such held no terrors for the daughter of the Dwat witches. She only would have been afraid of them if they left off being brigands and murderers and began instead to try and make love. The next moment, the footsteps turned the corner of her bit of path and stood still. Getting his wind? Thought Scrap, not looking round. Then, as he... From the sounds of the steps, she took them to be a man, did not move. She turned her head and beheld with astonishment a person she had seen a good deal of lately in London. The well-known writer of amusing memoirs, Mr. Ferdinand Arundel. She stared. Nothing in the way of being followed surprised her anymore. 
but that he should have discovered where she was surprised her. Her mother had promised faithfully to tell no one. You, she said, feeling betrayed. Here. He came up to her and took off his hat. His forehead beneath the hat was wet with the beads of unaccustomed climbing. He looked ashamed and entreating, like a guilty but devoted dog. You must forgive me, he said. Lady Dwartwich told me where you were, and as I happened to be passing through on my way to Roma, I, I thought I would get out at Mazako and just look in and see how you were. Didn't my mother tell you I was doing a rest cure? Yes, she did, and that's why I haven't intruded on you earlier in the day. I thought you would probably sleep all day and wake up about now so as to be fed. But I know. I've got nothing to say in excuse. I couldn't help myself. This, thought Scrap comes of mother insisting on having authors to lunch, and me being so much more amiable in appearance than I really am. She had been amiable to Ferdinand Arundel. She had liked him, or rather, she did not dislike him. He seemed a jovial, simple man, and had the eyes of a nice dog. Also, though it was evident that he admired her, he had not in London, grabbed. There, he had merely been a good-natured, harmless person of entertaining conversation who helped to make luncheons agreeable. Now it appeared that he too was a grabber. Fancy following her out there, daring to. Nobody else had. Perhaps her mother had given him the address because she considered him so absolutely harmless and thought he might be useful and see her home. Well, whatever he was, he couldn't possibly give her the trouble an active young man like Mr. Briggs might give her. Mr. Briggs, infatuated, would be reckless, she felt, would stick at nothing, would lose his head publicly. She could imagine Mr. Briggs doing things with rope ladders and singing all night under her window, being really difficult and uncomfortable. Mr. Arundel hadn't the figure for any kind of recklessness. He had lived too long and too well. She was sure he couldn't sing and wouldn't want to. He must be at least 40. How many good dinners could not a man have eaten by the time he was 40. And if during that time, instead of taking exercise, he had sat writing books, he would quite naturally acquire the figure Mr. Arundel had in fact acquired. The figure rather for conversation than adventure. Scrab, who had become melancholy at the sight of Briggs, became philosophical at the sight of Arundel. Here he was. She couldn't send him away till after dinner. He must be nourished. This being so, she had better make the best of it, and do that with a good grace which anyhow wasn't to be avoided. Besides, he would be a temporary shelter from Mr. Briggs. She was at least acquainted with Ferdinand Arundel, and could hear news of him from her mother and friends and such talk would put up a defensive barrier at dinner between herself and the approaches of the other one. It was only for one dinner, but he couldn't eat her. She therefore prepared herself for friendliness. I'm to be fed, she said, ignoring his last remark, at eight, and you must come up and be fed too. Sit down and get cool and tell me how everybody is. May I really dine with you in these traveling things, he said, wiping his forehead before sitting down beside her. She was too lovely to be true, he thought. Just to look at her for an hour, just to hear her voice was enough reward for his journey and his fears. 
Of course. Suppose you've left your fly in the village and will be going on from Mazaga by the night train. Or stay in Mazago in a hotel and go on tomorrow. But tell me, he said, gazing at the adorable profile, about yourself. London has been extraordinarily dull and empty. Lady Dwatwich said you were with people here she didn't know. Hope they've been kind to you. You look, well, as if your cure had done everything a cure should. They've been very kind said Scrap. I got them out of an advertisement. An advertisement? It's a good way, I find, to get friends. I'm fonder of one of these than I have been of anybody in years. Really? Who is it? You shall guess which of them it is when you see them. Tell me about Mother. When did you see her last? We arranged not to write to each other unless there was something special wanted to have a month that was perfectly blank. Now I've come and interrupted. Oh, I can't tell you how ashamed I am, both of having done it and of not being able to help it. Oh, but, said Scrab quickly, for he could not have come on a better day. When up there, waiting and watching for her, was, she knew, the enamoured Briggs. I'm really very glad indeed to see you. Tell me about Mother.